Have you been noticing the buildup in traffic? Here she goes again. I'm sorry, sailor, but that ozone layer's disappearing. One of these mornings, the sun's gonna come up and burn a hole clean through the planet like an electrical x-ray. Well, that ain't never will happen, honey. At least not in our lifetime. By then, they'll be driving Buicks to the moon. Hello and welcome to CageCast, the podcast that joyfully dissects the filmography of one of America's most unique and engaging leading men, Nicolas Cage. I am Nate Porter and with me is Britt Porter. Listen up. Here's how CageCast works. We are in the process of watching every Nicolas Cage film in order according to the film's release date. We'll be reviewing every film in which Nicolas Cage had either a starring role or an integral supporting role. This week, we'll be discussing the 1990 film Wild at Heart. Right. We will break down the film's plot and themes, and then afterward, we rate each film on a scale of zero to four stars in three different categories. The film as entertainment, the film as art, and then in terms of Cage's performance. Last time, our cumulative score for Time to Kill was a whopping four, which puts it squarely in last place, the worst Nick Cage movie out of the nine that we've reviewed thus far. Will Wild at Heart claim the top spot? You will have to listen and find out, won't you? Indeed, indeed. As a reminder, we do not share our scores with each other before the show. We round out the show with our patented cage cast running totals rapid fire questionnaire. And uh, we have a good time doing all those things, wouldn't you say? Yes, I am actually pro podcasting about Nick Cage. So uh, it's good for me and a happy coincidence that we actually do one. Yes. How fortunate. All right. Wild at Heart. Uh, release date. You were you Last week, you were lamenting that we hadn't um, gotten to the 90s yet. Finally. Finally, we're there. So Let almost, me tell you. Yeah, almost a year after Time to Kill came out, this one came out. Uh, it, it premiered at, at the uh, Cannes Film Festival, but it released uh, here in the United States in August of 1990. The budget was uh, $10 million around that, and it grossed about 14. so not a huge box office hit. But David Lynch movies rarely are. Yeah, that's true. He's maybe too crazy for mainstream America. Yeah, I think uh, history has probably shown that to be the case. Why don't you tell us of Cage's co-stars in this fantastic (laughs) family adventure? It's not... There's nothing... Well, there is a family component. Laura Dern, who um, all I had really known her from was a few other David Lynch movies and Jurassic Park. Willem Dafoe, who is always a favorite. Yes, I'm a big Willem Dafoe fan. What are your favorite roles of his? I really love him in Boondock Saints. Sure. That's a big one for me. I love how he's like this supposedly sort of straight-faced Boston cop who turns out to be kind of crazy and nutty himself. I just think that's great. I think he does crazy and loony really well. Did you ever see Last Temptation of Christ? No. I don't know if I want to. Mm. I've been on the fence about that for a really long time. Did you ever see... Let's see, he's also an antichrist. I'm sensing a theme here. Would you say Boondock Saints is your favorite, Defoe? Yeah, but he's been in... Well, the last thing I saw him in was 
Grand Budapest Hotel. And that was fantastic. Oh, yeah. He was great in that. He was this very menacing. Imposing. Yeah. yeah. But but unpredictable. Unpredictable. That's the word. Yeah. Wiley. Kind of a hitman. Wiley. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I thought he was great. I loved that one. Uh, Diane Ladd, who is actually Laura Dern's mom, is in this movie. Yes. She's crazy. She's crazy. Oh, it- my gosh. We're going to talk about her. There's okay. a scene I could barely watch. It's crazy. Okay. <laughs> Isabella Rossellini. Yeah, we almost didn't recognize her when we saw her. Yeah, I kept on waiting for her because I knew she was in the movie and then I finally saw those eyebrows. Yeah, it's crazy. Brooke Shields, eat your heart out. Ah, ha, ha. Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, Molly Ringwald's dad. 16 Candles. Little different. No, Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink, Molly Ringwald's dad. Oh, Harry Dean Stanton. He's kind of gullibly sweet in this movie too. Oh, yeah, I know. Your heart just kind of goes out for him. Yeah, he's... I mean, he's dumb a little bit. He kind of... He is not wild at heart. No, no. (laughs) But... Oh, Harry Dean. So... HDS. Writer writer and director of this movie is David Lynch. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, but what is your history with Mr. Lynch? Well, not much. I mean, I saw Dune, which was just awful, but I think all of us out here listening and participating in this conversation would agree, not David Lynch's best work. He's not really my style of director. He's. We were talking about this um, after screening this particular film, and I think you said something like, his movies are not necessarily narratives as much as they are emotional or um, tone-based works. They definitely are meant to evoke a mood and emotion they at least do for me more than they are about a precise narrative structure yeah and i just really i just really want a story now i want a story told and executed well but I, i want a story nonetheless there's a lot of story in dune Oh, that was awful. That was terrible. You know, it, it was And it was like poor. I mean, like there were all kinds of studio hiccups with that. And it wasn't made the way anyone involved in the film really wanted it to be. It, it had did not do the book justice. There was all kinds of baggage associated with Dune. Dune just doesn't even count as far as I'm concerned. Well, I, on the other hand, really enjoy David Lynch. Almost everything that I've seen. Big fan of Twin Peaks. Big fan of Mulholland Drive. Uh, love the Elephant Man. Uh, Eraserhead is very interesting. And so I hadn't seen this movie, so I was very, very excited to see uh, what he was going to do with this material. The cage genre. Uh, well, we're continuing into our batshit crazy cage. Yeah, we're, we're on a trend here, aren't we? Yeah, and he seemed to do that in his 80s films as well. He was lovably dopey for quite a long time, and now we're, we're kind of consistent in this particular... Batshit crazy cage he's, he's for a little bit here. He's got some lovably dopey in him here too, though. I'll say this before we jump right into the whole review. I will say the first 10 minutes of cage time that we get is pretty intense cage. And, you know, that kind of sets the tone for me for the rest of his character. He comes out swinging, let's just put it that way. Okay, uh, last thing we're going to mention briefly is the soundtrack. Now, this is probably the most varied soundtrack that we've experienced thus far. We have... Speed metal, classical, Chris Isaac, and quite a bit of uh, Elvis. Yeah, it's it uh, is it David Lynch's greatest hits? Is that what he was gunning for here? Or is that his aim? I don't I know. Think, I'm not exactly sure. I mean, tonally, he obviously is working on this juxtaposition between um, 
different genres of music and very intentionally putting um, almost mashing up in one scene speed metal and Elvis. Oh, yeah, that was crazy. But it, it did kind of work for the scene, as weird as it was. Yeah, very surreal. It worked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But speed metal and Elvis, I... I, I could go with him there. Yeah, I think I kind of, I think I kind of like this soundtrack. We're gonna play a couple songs from it, starting with Nicolas Cage singing an Elvis cover of "Love Me." I would beg and steal. He would beg and steal. Just to feel. Yes, just to feel. Your Okay, here we are, Wild at Heart. Now, I'm assuming you have no history with this film? Oh, yeah, none at all. Zip zero. Yeah, me neither. I I had known about it for a long time. I had wanted to see it for a long time. But since we started this podcast, I've really been holding off watching all the Nick Cage movies I want to see until we actually get to it, which is kind of stifling my viewing, actually. So um, it's inspiring us to keep on plowing forward. So with that being said, here is a quick... As quick as I could make it, plot synopsis. Okay, we see a lit match and fire burns over the credits. Sailor Ripley and Lula Fortune are young, passionate Southern lovers. Lula's mother, Marietta, fiercely disapproves of their relationship, so much so that she hires a hitman to kill Sailor. But where the hitman fails, Sailor succeeds, and he kills the attacker in self-defense. Still gets thrown into prison anyway after being convicted of manslaughter. Two years later, Sailor is released from prison. Lula takes Sailor to a hotel where they have sex. Then we see fire, and then we see more fire, and then we see even more fire. Are you sensing a pattern here? Mm, maybe. Meanwhile, Marietta hires Johnny Farragut, a washed-up PI and on-again, off-again lover of hers, to track the couple down. Sailor and Lula go to a speed metal show where Sailor not only defends Lula's honor, but then wows the crowd with an impromptu version of Elvis's Love Me. The film not only pays homage to Elvis throughout its runtime, but also The Wizard of Oz a lot. And we're talking Wicked Witches, Good Witches, Crystal Balls, etc. But we'll get into that in a minute. Okay, so at this point, there's more sex, there's more fire imagery, there's more Wizard of Oz, then more fire, and then more fire, and then more fire, and then more fire, and then more sex. And that's just during one scene of dialogue. Sailor decides to break his parole and take Lula on a cross-country adventure. First stop, New Orleans. With Johnny Farragut in hot pursuit, Marietta also tosses the local gangster Marcellus Santos into the fray by asking him to kill Sailor. Santos also insists on killing Johnny while he's at it. Sailor and Lula make it to the Big Easy where there's more sex 
and fire imagery to be had. Marietta feels instantly guilty about the hit put on Johnny, so she very rationally and sensibly covers her face and hands in red lipstick. Sailor recounts a sexual encounter with another woman to Lula, which ultimately leads to, you guessed it, more fire and more sex and more sex and more sex and more fire. It's true. It's true. Santos finds Johnny and has some colorful hitmen and women dispose of him. The couple reach Big Tuna, Texas, where they meet a new set of characters, Bobby Peru, a small-time criminal with seriously horrible oral hygiene. And we also discover that Lula is pregnant. Sailor gives her a candy necklace to commemorate the blessed event. Bobby gets Sailor involved in his plan to rob a feed store, but we learn the plan is really a cover in order for Bobby to kill Sailor, a hit he was contracted for by Mr. Reindeer, who we even neglected to mention earlier, but it's, it's not important. The robbery goes fine until Bobby kills the employees and then turns the gun on Sailor before accidentally blowing his own head off, literally. Lula is reunited with her mother and Sailor is caught and sent to prison for his role in the crime. He emerges six years later, convinced he is not good enough for Lula or their son that he has never met. Lula picks him up from prison, but he soon leaves the car and walks out on their lives forever. Until... Dun, dun, dun! And we are not making this up. A gang of Mexicans surround Sailor as he is walking down an empty street. He quickly insults them and is knocked out after being punched in the face. So now, obviously, Glinda the Good Witch of the North, yes, from the Wizard of Oz, descends from the sky and appears to Sailor and tells them that if he is truly wild at heart, he cannot turn away from love. Sailor runs back to Lula, confesses his undying love for her, and serenades her with Love Me Tender over the closing credits. Yes! What a great movie. <laughs> what a great film. I feel like we sh- that should just be our review. So we talked earlier about the idea of there being very little narrative, but it, the film evoking more of a tone or a mood. And so I- I'll be honest, I feel like this is going to be a hard one to describe, but we can begin at the beginning, which is about a seven to ten minute scene of... Sailor and Lula at a social event. Right, in some a, sort of ball. Yeah, or big southern, fancy ballroom, southern yeah. event. Everyone's dressed up. And an unknown man walks up to Sailor as they're walking down some stairs. Pulls out a knife. Pulls out a knife and attempts to kill him. And this is like 30 seconds into the movie. Right, like we're, we've just met them. They seem to be a nice young couple. Yeah, and, and oh, I should mention, because we do it every film, our fearless hero is immediately present at the start of the film. Right. We don't have to any lag time in his appearance. He's right there. Right. So he immediately gets confronted by this um, hitman, basically. And the guy pulls out a knife and Sailor just bashes his head in. Yeah. It doesn't take long, maybe two minutes. And he like literally bashes his head bloody against the marble and it kills the guy. Right. And it, it immediately establishes who Sailor is. He didn't start this, but he finished it. And you can tell this is not the first time he's been in a violent encounter. The other thing that we could and should mention maybe is the man before he attempts to kill Sailor does mention something about um, Lula's mom contracting him for the hit and Lula's mother telling him, this man, that she and Sailor were in the bathroom together having sex or something kind of insidious like that. You don't really know if it's true or not but sailor then kills him so you know it's probably not so already from the very beginning there's a sense of danger here there's a strong sense that 
Lula's mother does not approve of their love. We really don't even know much about their relationship at this point. We just know that Nick Cage is kind of a badass. Lula's mother, who is Diane Ladd, Marietta, is there witnessing the whole thing. And he and she make eye contact and he sort of gives her this, I've got your number look. And she just gets pissed. She's She's mad that he didn't die. And I thought that was kind of funny. Like, that's a completely atypical response in any other normal movie. But instead, she's just like, Stern, I'll get you. Very Wicked Witch. Now Very. that I look back on it and know that what's coming is two hours of crazy <laughs> Over wi- the top. Wizard of Oz references throughout the movie. Right. But, yeah. Right off the bat here, I love Sailor. And I love Nicolas Cage. We don't know anything about Lula yet. But I mean, just that he uh, takes charge so quickly and so um, immediately. In the situation, I just think he's, uh, it establishes the character very well. So, you know, fast forward, what, two years have passed and Sailor's in prison and he's getting released and he calls Lula's house and has this like showdown over the phone with Marietta. Like you're, you know, never going coming for my daughter and just. Yeah. Like somehow she would have changed her mind. In right. Two years. Right. No, she's more. And she's also a drunk. We, we need to point that out. She, and seems she like has she's an crazy and she has crazy hair. I get that it's like. The South in the early 90s or whatever, but it looks like a wig most of the time. I mean, yeah, she's crazy. But anyway, it's just sort of one of those like, again, it's this, it's this normal scene. Oh, disapproving mother and rebellious boy out to get her daughter. But it's like over the top crazy. I mean, she's got these long, hot pink fingernails that and she's just got this crazy hair and full face of makeup. And yeah, she's sloshing around a martini the whole time. And she's like screaming it's really um extreme but you know that's and after like again we're on like minute five of the film so it's just kind of startling to the senses to have this be the beginning yeah i don't like her yeah i think we're not supposed to like her well so mission accomplished david lynch there we go maybe his wiles are working on you better than you thought oh no don't say that all right so Sailor gets out of prison. Lula is right there to pick him up in a classic old car. And I love it. The first thing that she gives him is his old jacket. Wow. Baby, I got a surprise for you. Hey, my snakeskin jacket. Thanks, baby. Did I ever tell you that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? About 50,000 times. I got us a room at the Cape Fear. And guess what? Power Man's playing at the Hurricane. Stabbing and steer. And then immediately, I mean, they go and do what any red-blooded American couple would. Oh, yeah, that's right. Shacking up. They go straight to the hotel and make sweet love. Oh, yes. Down indeed. by the fire. on the And on the bed? I don't know. We get plenty of it in this movie. No, maybe we should talk about this. We, get, we have to address it at some point. There's a lot of sex in this movie, and there is a lot of fire imagery in this movie. Inter, intercut, interspersed. Yeah. A sex scene can be... Yeah, I think that this obviously is a very intentional choice by Lynch to show just the kind of raw passion that they have for each other. I think that comes through. I think that in the beginning, I really wasn't sure about their relationship and what it was based on, but and it seems like they're really into each other. And, and the fire imagery not only ev- evokes like kind of a sense of dread of in the story, but also it's, um, it's a representation for the fire they have for each other. Yeah, sure. Yes. All no, you of don't, that. You don't, you didn't like, that didn't like, um, that wasn't evocative for you. That didn't like, like create this mood of like passion and 
that was just oozing from the from the screen? Was it no? Oo- it wasn't oozing. There was nothing. Well, something was oozing clearly, but it wasn't passion from the screen. I it, don't think. Why didn't it uh, work for you? You know, it wasn't subtle. It wasn't like a you know fade to this scene and overlayer some music that is sensual. It's like a six-year-old cutting together pieces of film, like literally cutting them and pasting them together. There was no like transition from one scene to the other. It was just sex, fire, sex, fire with this really intense, edgy music. It felt more um, ominous than anything else to me. Like this is a relationship that's going to burn or this something bad is coming but doesn't for that seem Doesn't that seem true to the tone of the movie? Like it wouldn't make sense for there to be like soothing, soft... Um, sensual music well, down again, by the fire. Doesn't this? It doesn't again, this fit right in for what they're what he's trying to do? Well, I, again, I am a narrative junkie. I want a story, and so yeah, sure, you can make that argument. But I'm telling you that you want passion oozing, and for me, that there needs to be more. You need to hold my hand through it a little bit. Right. More. I guess what I'm contending over this movie, and I think what you have to contend for in a David Lynch film, is that the editing and the style. And the shots and the um, direction, it serves to create a mood more than it serves to create a story. And so I'm, I'm contending that Lynch knows exactly what he's doing here, and he's doing it very well. Well, obviously he knows what he's doing, and he's got reasoning behind why he's doing it. But for me, it, with, the, with the fire imagery in particular, it just seemed like... It was a little bit more ominous. Something was coming for them. It was dangerous what they were about to do. And we don't even know at this point what they're going to embark on. But it just feels dangerous. Especially when you consider what happens next in the storyline. So they have sex and then you kind of see this. You see this conversation play out between Sailor and Lula. Where she's just recounting a really abusive part of her past with a male associate of her father's and her being what did she say like 13 or 14 and it she kind of implies that he well, he just raped he raped her he raped her or at least sexually assaulted her when i was 15 my mama told me that uh, pretty soon i'd be starting to think about sex and i should tell her before i did anything about it but honey i thought you told me your uncle pooch raped you when he was 13 that's true Uncle Pooch wasn't really an uncle. He's a business partner of my daddy's. Mama never knew nothing about me and him. That's for damn sure. Uncle Pooch died in a car crash three months later while he was holidaying in Myrtle Beach. And so she's just had sex with Sailor with all this crazy music and fire imagery. And then this is the next scene that we get is she's recounting the story and kind of doing it deadpan. Like there's no tears and there's no emotional response. She's just telling him that this happened and he's just listening. There's like no one's reacting to this story. Right. I think it, I think it just goes to explain who she is and why... She is the way she is and why she can conduct herself the way she does. Yeah, but again, like I said, this this whole scene felt ominous to me and dangerous. And that to me just adds to the danger that we have this woman who's had some really terrible things happen to her. And now she's kind of going out with this guy who, for all we know, is a murderer. And very we know very little else about him except that his, her mom doesn't like him. And then she tells the story. Like the whole tone for me feels 
much edgier than these two are passionately in love. Feels like something is not going to go well for her at some point, you know, with with the little we know about him and the story she's just told just seems like she's headed down a bad way. But that's what I got out of it. And listener, I want to just remind you for the last time, we're probably not going to mention it every time it happens, but there are literal, when I say there's fire imagery, there's like a cutaway to a match burning or a cutaway to, or a cutaway to structure ablaze or or a cutaway to a structure ablaze for one second. And then back to the action. It's that in your face, intentional imagery. And it happens throughout the entire movie. It's a little jarring, but again, on, on reflection, it definitely worked for me. So let's try and keep the narrative, what little narrative there is, going. Um, after we see Sailor and Lula with their crazy, fire-filled lovemaking, the next scene is Marietta and Johnny Farragut. Oh, Johnny Farragut. Dopey. He's lovably dopey in this movie, I think. Don't you? Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I like him and his character. He's He's definitely trying to please Marietta at every turn. He really likes her, I think. Yeah, I know. Poor, I don't know why. Guy. She's awful. Yeah, she's weird she's and the terrible. Worst. I hate her. So the next scene is is of the two of them, and she's hatching a plan. Hatching a plan she's to go not happy. to go and get the kids. You got to go find them. Um, I don't want my daughter with this guy, and she doesn't like intimate murder. I don't think she just wants him to go and find Sailor and Lula and bring them back. But she uses sex too. She kind of like crawls around on the floor and is seductive in a way that is really kind of weird. But she's like, she's crazy from minute one. I mean, she's just various levels. I mean, Diane Ladd is, she's got to be a a hell of an actress because she's just all levels of crazy throughout this whole movie. There's not a progression. There's not a ramp up. It's just on from the, you know, first scene of the movie. Well, we find out that she tried, she did try to have sex with Sailor in the bathroom right before she tried to have him killed. So she's all sorts of nuts. Yeah. And I, you know, again, like, oh, Johnny Farragut, you are lovably dopey. And I don't get why you're all in it for this gal, but you are. And so he agrees to go find Sailor and Lula. It's kind of how that ends. Sailor and Lula are off to uh, go dance. Yes. So they go from this hotel room they're in to this crazy metal bar and... They're just having a great old time. And Britt, I got to tell you, I love this scene at the metal bar. Do what you? do you love about well, it? Well, I'll tell you what I love about it. Are you going to provide me with an opportunity to prove my love to my girl? Or are you going to save yourself some trouble? Step up like a gentleman and apologize to her. Don't fuck with me, man. Look like a clown in that stupid jacket. This is a snakeskin jacket. And for me, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief. And personal freedom. Asshole. Come here. Honey. I'm sorry to do this to you here in front of a crowd and all, but I want you to get up and apologize to my girl. I'm sorry. My hell. You just bumped up against the wrong girl, is all. That's good. Now go get yourself a beer. Not only does Sailor defend her honor in a very kind of old-fashioned way, um, there's some guy who's dancing up on Lula, and Sailor comes up to him and makes and stops everything. The entire crowd stops, which is it's very surreal. It's not it's not a real life moment, but the entire crowd stops and then grabs the mic and serenades her with a uh, Elvis song. 
Yeah, in the middle. What we already, the love me that we just uh, heard a few minutes ago. Yeah, and in the middle of a metal bar and everyone stops and listens and it's just like the women are like slowly getting more and more into it. And then at the end, there's all like mass applause and they just think, I mean, it's like, it is, it's crazy. It is probably one of my favorite scenes of the movie. It's fun, right? It's so funny and fun. And it's a great Nicolas Cage moment. I mean, he does such a great job just... Busting out this song, he sings the whole thing and is on point and doesn't break character. It's it's a really good cagey moment. Well, I'm glad you liked it because I really liked it a lot as well. Might be one of the only things about this movie I liked, but I'll give it its due. So right after this, right after the scene at the metal bar, uh, we get an extended dialogue scene where they're just getting to know each other a little bit more, talking about their childhood, having sex, more fire, all of that kind of thing, and I think. Um, this is the scene for me, and you mentioned it too, Britt, that I, I really think there's some great acting here. I think, especially Laura Dern, this is where I bought into her character. I think she totally embodies Lula. I think we understand a lot more about her, and she never breaks character. Finally, saw her as a great actress um, in this scene. I, I really, in my life, had only known her from Jurassic Park, which is bad, and Inland Empire, which is another David Lynch movie that I've seen. But um, this is where she really sold me. She's young, she's beautiful, and she is very, very passionate and headstrong. I really, really buy that she is who she says she is in this movie. And I and I really thought she would ultimately be the weak point with Nicolas Cage doing all the heavy lifting in this movie. But I think She's, I think she's really up to the challenge and, and going pound for pound with Cage. I was thinking about smoking, actually. My mama smokes Merritt's now. Used to be she smoked Viceroy's. I started stealing them from her in about sixth grade. When did you start smoking, Sale? I guess I started smoking when I was about four. My mom was already dead then from lung cancer. What brand did she smoke? Marlboro's, same as me. I guess both my mama and my daddy died of smoke or alcohol-related illness. Please say, honey, I'm sorry. It's okay, honey. I didn't hardly used to see them anyways. I didn't have much parental guidance. The public defender kept saying that at my parole hearing. Yeah, I agree. She's an incredible character. And as much as there are some really wacky characters like uh, Marietta and um, Bobby Peru, who we're going to see a little bit later... And even some of the hitmen that that make an appearance, she and Cage, the two of them, are really solid and and do some really incredible. They really are this young couple. So you know, so, just to kind of speed the plot along, there's this brief scene with Marietta talking to Johnny Farragut on the phone, getting an update, and it's not essentially it's not good enough for her because what happens next is that she brings in Marcella Santos who we don't know much about. He's been mentioned briefly in a couple of dialogue scenes, but um, we don't know much about him. And so when she sits down with him again, crazy hair, um, (laughs) big old crazy hair. She ups the ante. She doesn't just want Sailor to be tracked down. She wants him dead. And she knows that, and she knows that Johnny isn't going to do that. And so she's kind of, she's kind of breaking down. Now it's not just, I want my daughter back, but I want this guy dead again. I've decided, yeah, I he needs to go. Yeah, Johnny actually defended Sailor earlier in the movie. He said it was self-defense and but Santos, we find out, I think he he and I think he and Sailor worked 
with each other. Yeah. And so he's he's ready to kill him. Well, and it's kind of hinted at too that Marietta and Santos have some history in some in some form. Yeah, it seems like Marietta got around a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. So she brings Santos in. They have this talk. He agrees to go find and kill Sailor, but he also wants Johnny, which it's not clear why. He just does. And she's really concerned, but she doesn't say no. You want me to shoot Sailor in the brains with a gun? Yes. In the forehead? Yes. Wrong. It's always better to blow a hole through the back of the head, right through to the bridge of the nose. Lots of irreparable brain damage. See? I knew you had it under control. You're a little slow, but you're beginning to get it. That's right. kind of how they leave that. She's not happy about it, but she she knows now that Johnny's going to be oft and they're going to try to kill a sailor too it's it's very <laughs> i will give you this it does get convoluted because santos hires uh mr reindeer, mr. reindeer. who is surrounded by naked women yeah all the time very good reasons i'm sure so marietta hires santos Santos hires Mr. Reindeer, and he then contracts... Isabella Rossellini. To, well, he, at this point we know... There are two levels of hitmen yeah, there are two, involved here. There are two groups of hitmen that get contacted, one for Sailor and one for Johnny. And, and we kind of go, okay, so the chain of events has been set in motion. And now the plot thickens. Because now it's also known to us at, at this point in the movie that Sailor and Lula have decided to drive... Across country to California. With the first stop being in New Orleans. We see them in New Orleans, as Nate says. They're having sex. They go to a bar. There's just some, there's just a lot of random characters that come in and out that have no obvious um, point. Like there's this crazy old guy in a bar in New Orleans and he's just a random character just making an appearance. And that's a very Lynchian thing to do. Just like one person coming in, saying something weird in a weird voice and then going right out again. Yep. And that's exactly what this guy does. Um, you know, we see a couple other people later on in the in the film, and uh, again, for me, it really heightens the tension. And I don't know why that is, because for example, this crazy older guy in the bar is perfectly fine. He's not making a pass at Lula. He's not, you know, offering them drugs. I mean, he's not doing anything that we would consider to be creepy or dangerous behavior. He's just weird. And he's just there for no reason, and then he's gone. Um, but it, but he is weird, though. But it, it feels to me like these people and these events are just serving to kind of up the ante of danger. No, Throughout I- this whole thing, there's just a couple of other places in the movie where we see Really strange things happen. The the encounter, we'll talk about it, but there's a, an intense car accident scene that there there's a whole that plays out, and it doesn't have any bearing whatsoever on the narrative moving forward. But it's very disturbing. It's very weird. It just feels like we're seeing these signposts for 
something bad is coming. And these it starts mildly with this creepy guy, but it just continues to sort of escalate throughout the movie. Like, something bad's going to happen. Right, which is why I think I really like this movie, is that this is exactly what Lynch is trying to do. How you're feeling is exactly how he wants you to feel, which is, is the sign of a great filmmaker and even the sign of a great film that it's not that yes, maybe it might be a little crazy, but it's getting out of you exactly what it wants to get out of you, which to me is the sign of good art. Well, here's why I have an issue with it. Um, As we progress through this review, you'll see listeners, but I don't feel like the ending warrants all of the drama. It just doesn't. You know, there's kind of one climactic scene sort of towards the end. um, But even after that comes and goes, the last 15 minutes of the movie really don't warrant. I mean, there's nothing in my opinion, that really um, needs this sort of this sort of uncomfortable buildup. And I mean, I, there is a profound level of discomfort. And if you're saying that that's the point, why? I, I, want, the, I want it to build to something meaningful. Um, I want there to be a reason for me to be uncomfortable because your, your radar goes up watching this, right? You're kind of thinking, here's Lula, and she's this very innocent, naive girl who's fallen in with this guy, and now they're go- he's breaking parole by going across country, and all of these things are kind of happening to her and around her. Is she getting, you know, further and further into this, like, web she can't get out of with these really dangerous people coming after her boyfriend? Like, there's a lot there. And I really start to, you start to kind of fear for her, get nervous for her. Like, is she at some point going to become a pawn in all of this or be used to, for really wicked ends? We'll talk about it in detail, but ultimately that's not what happens. And so if there, if that were to happen, if there were to be some sort of penultimate, you know, incident involving Lula and her safety or the, her fate as a character, I, I would feel that all of this discomfort is warranted, but it doesn't. And so I don't like that the director is playing with my emotions for no good reason. Well, we can talk about the reason at the end. Talk about your favorite scene of the movie here. Oh my gosh. Okay. I had to think for a minute. So we know that Sailor and Lula are basically on their way, stopping in New Orleans. And, you know, inevitably there's just dialogue and sex and smoking and drinking and all those typical things. There's this crazy sidebar um, story. Again, another disturbing story that Lula tells about her cousin who is played by um, Crispin Glover. Crispin Glover who also is one of those actors that I never managed to see him in anything other than roles where he's crazy. Yeah, he's he's certifiable, I he's, think, in real life. He's a, he's a strange one. Anyway, so he's her cousin who is just crazy, and she tells the story of him being crazy and him, you know, having to live with his mom. and Ultimately sticking cockroaches up his butt. I yeah, think? something weird like doing that. A, doing a kind of funky dance. And, uh, and which again, is a, Which is a great scene for some reason to me. Mama told me Aunt Rudy, this is Dale's mama. Found cockroaches in Dale's underwear. One time, she found Dale putting one big cockroach right on his anus. Hell, peanut. (laughs) (coughs) It ain't so funny now, though. Dale disappeared. Nobody's seen him since. It's too bad he couldn't visit that old Wizard of Oz and get some good advice. Too bad we all can't, baby. But as you know, that's not even the scene I was talking about. I'm talking about um, uh, I'm talking about Marietta and her love affair with her red lipstick. Oh yeah. So there is um, another scene with Marietta and Johnny, and he's checked in at a hotel in New Orleans, and we can't I can't tell if it's the same hotel that Sailor and Lula are in, but but he's found them. He's tracked them them down to the city at least, and so he's 
on the phone with Marietta telling her that he's found them and what his plans are and good old sweet Harry Dean Stanton, Johnny Farragut just doing what he's supposed to do. And Marietta is on the other end of the line doing her makeup and at some point kind of has a Lady Macbeth style breakdown. That's exactly what it is. I've been trying to place what it is. Yeah. Out damn spot. It's out, out damn spot. It's absolutely, she's now realizing that she sent this mobster off to kill her lover who's perfectly decent nice guy who's never done anything wrong who's just doing what she's telling him to do and she has this tube of red lipstick and proceeds to cover her entire face and hands in this shocking red color and it really does look like blood which like, you yeah, know like she's covered in she's covered blood. in like, blood like Carrie but more yeah and I mean this the imagery is pretty pretty stark and pretty obvious we see why she's doing this because she's the guilt is overwhelming but the scene is a good two or three minutes long and her whole face is red and it is so hard to watch i I had to at one point turn away because it's such an intense visual that and she's again kind of she's crazy eyed and and really fearing for him but can't tell him what she did and he's you know, cutting back to him and he's just in his hotel room trying to calm her down and she's just flipping out in her, you know, white silk or satin nightdress and her whole face is red and it's just like... And when we pan out, what is crazy. she wearing on her feet? Well, so then at the end of the scene, we see her sitting on the bathroom floor and, and as um, the camera pans away... We see her legs and feet sort of arrayed in much the same way as the Wicked Witch of the East. So it's very evocative of that witchy imagery. Now, let's, I want to talk for just a moment because just like the fire imagery, this Wizard of Oz imagery, it started off as pretty subtle, like, hey, I wonder if they're going for a little Wizard of Oz thing here. And then by the end, you'll see, like, it's just full on, no holds barred, crazy, crazy use of this this film is kind of a storytelling device and i'm wondering is it just that that's another movie that tells of a journey where the characters change and where you know this kind of epic uh, you know cross country adventure is that why we're seeing so much of that or do you think there's something more yeah i don't know i've given it some thought you know i think at one point when we picked up on some of the few bits of more subtle Wizard of Oz bits that started in the beginning of this movie. We both thought, hey, okay, well, here's a theme. Let's let's see if we can find out, figure out who the Scarecrow is and who the Tin Man is, which characters might those be, you know, alluding to. But, um, and, and I liked that, you know, there's a couple of, of parts where, you know, they're, Lula and Sailor are driving and there's a few different shots of them driving from place to place. And there's, you know, one of them mentioned something like that we're on the yellow brick road and there's imagery of the yellow, you know, painted yellow lines down the middle of the highway and that sort of stuff. So you're thinking, okay, yeah, they're, 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 they're Dorothy in this, you know, little metaphor, but I don't, I would feel like there'd be more, more connection to the movie if it didn't get so comically obvious towards the Yeah, end. this, this part of the movie is, is the part that was a little stretched then for me. If it had been a consistent, subtle theme that sort of continued down and, you know, maybe this is a twisted version of The Wizard of Oz. Maybe they took this idea of the hero's journey and the Wizard of Oz is the vehicle for that and put it on its head and, and it's play, playing it from another angle. I liked those ideas, but I just couldn't go with them. By the time we got to, you know, uh, there there's two or three shots of Marietta posed as the Wicked Witch of the West on a broom throughout this. There's, 
you know, Glinda the Good Witch coming in at the very end, very obviously in a big bubble with a big dress, just like she does in the original classic. And so at that point, I'm kind of going, yeah, he's he's almost poking fun at it now. He's not really even using it as a metaphor for his own story or as a foil for his own characters. Now he's just sticking it right in your face. And uh, it fell flat for me. So I don't know why he made that choice or what it might represent. If you listeners have any ideas, send us an email and let us know. The, the next scene is my favorite scene of the movie, actually. Sailor's actually taking a break from driving. Lula's driving. She uh, is switching through the radio stations. For her recent divorce, shot and killed her three children, age seven. Shot right between A local judge praised defendant John Roy, but was dismayed to learn that Roy had had sex with the corpse. Roy's lawyer was quoted as saying, State authorities last October released 500 turtles into the Ganges to try and reduce human pollution, and now plan to put in the crocodiles to devour floating corpses. Dump Holy shit! It's not a living fucking town! What's up, Nina? I can't take no more of this radio. I never heard so much shit in all my life. Sailor Ripley, you get me some music on that radio this instant! I made it! Victim of a sexual assault. And it's nothing but horrible piece of news to horrible piece of news. And she finally can't take it anymore. And she screams for Sailor to find her, to find some music to turn on the radio because she cannot take kind of the dark and gloomy nature of this existence. And she needs him to bring that passion into her life and to be a distraction from the kind of oppressive, evil nature that she is seeing in the world. And they're driving and they're yelling and they're screaming and they're so exuberant almost so so overtaken by this moment that they have to get out of the car and like dance and karate kick the sky <laughs> in this it's it's so great it is it makes me so happy because it's like a sunset over a midwestern sky it's beautiful it's america and it's these two kids who are just having the time of their lives forgetting the world forgetting their problems and living on love and honestly, it is my favorite. It might be my favorite Nick Cage moment that I've ever seen so far. Like wow, him, that's like amazing. Back, he backflips over the side of the car and starts karate kicking the air. All while wearing his snakeskin jacket. It's just great. Did you really like it? You know, it was heartwarming for me to see him in this. This to me now has become sort of the way of Nicolas Cage. It's a really great, yeah, okay, here he is. This is a guy that we love so much. You know, he's just... He's young. He's young and he's kicking and he's going nuts and he's having fun. I just think, okay, is this... Was he directed to do this? Or, you know, maybe there was just like, okay, the kids go nuts. This was his version. I really... I did like seeing him here because this is the Cage that we... I mean, he does spin kicks. It's very reminiscent of like Elvis and he did karate. Yeah, It just... They embrace and you know there's like i said there's a sunset and it just it i cannot help but just kind of be filled with joy that this actor at this time of his life can do whatever he wants Um, yeah anyway it was fun it made me happy so now we can start speeding through some of this stuff 
So Johnny Farragut is still in New Orleans, even though Lula and Sailor have left. And unfortunately for him, his time comes to an end pretty quickly. Marietta comes over to New Orleans to meet him. And they have a nice dinner conversation and then they go back to their rooms and the plan is that he's going to meet her in the lobby and he never shows. And that's because... Santos has other plans. Yes. He's got these three really weird hitmen um, that... They're kind of voodoo, voodoo-y, which makes sense given the setting. He meets his end. I think he just gets shot in the head or something like but that. But it's a crazy scene. It almost, yeah, like really there's this witchy woman that it looks like she's going to rip his heart out in some crazy voodoo ceremony, but I do think he just dies the normal way. That's my favorite way to go. Yeah, me too. So Johnny's Johnny's toast. So hit number one is done. I think this is around the time where we find out that Nick Cage, Sailor, was a getaway driver outside of Lula's house the night where her dad died in a fire because of Santos's criminal activity. Yeah, and that comes in bits and pieces throughout the film, but that's the that's the summary for the and most it, part. And it kind of throws her for a loop. She's trying to figure out what's going on with her life. She really doesn't know um, this this kind of revelation that oh, a sailor knew about me, and he was in cahoots with the guys that killed my father. By the way, we didn't tell you her dad's dead and got killed in a fire. So that's. Probably a lot of the reason where there's all this fire motif as well. And right then, they come across a car wreck. So they're driving through the desert or the prairie. It's dark. It's at late night, at night. Yeah. And yeah, they see an enormous car wreck on the side of the road. And it's bad. People, like, they go over to investigate. And there's two guys dead in the car. And then there's a woman. They find her kind of wandering out in the and she's desert a little bit. covered in blood and completely incoherent. And they're trying to get her to come with them. And she's just, her life is ebbing out of her is basically what we see but it's really disturbing for lula and it's really awful because they can't help her and they basically just watch her bleed out and die on the side of the road now i would contend another really good scene really well shot really well edited and very well acted and i would say again here is an example of some really disturbing material that doesn't drive the narrative forward but establishes a very disturbing tone and an right. ominous one that you feel like ought to foreshadow something bad is coming their way i mean they did the last time we saw them they had this great sunset scene where they're dancing and celebrating life and now they're plunged right back into sort of this dark, right? That, this darkness. That life is that life is brutal and it's hard and it sucks and there's no hope. Now she fucking tells me. Let's get a hold of her quick. You think she's gonna make it? Don't know, but she's gonna bleed all over our car. I'll tell you that. Hey, hello, girl. You gotta come with us, honey. Leave me alone, Robert. Robert. <laughs> Sticky stuff in my hair. You better come with us, honey. Come on. I gotta film my wallet. Don't say one word to this to my mother, please. Please. God, she's gonna kill me. Can't worry about that. You got. Where's my hair, bro? And you can tell from Lula's response to the whole scene that as much as she's witnessed or endured, it's pretty unbearable for her. She's definitely more the innocent of the of the two of them in this case. I just think. That means something's going to happen to you. You're going to end up dead or tortured. I just keep thinking something's coming for her. Why else would there be so many crazy, disturbing, tense pieces that do nothing to actually play out the story? Because that's how life is. That is how our world is. That's why the uh, the radio was doing what it did. It just I feel like Lynch is saying this world is a series of 
crappy situations one after another after another after another and that's all we have except for love and passion mm, well to be continued all for right. sure so finally sailor and lula sort of hit their final destination and that is the lovely town of big tuna texas which i'm curious to know if it really exists I'm positive that there's a big tuna, Texas. Yeah, it's an interesting place. And there, I believe at one point Lula even says, you know, why are we stopping here? It kind of indicates it's off the beaten path and not really a part of their plan to get to California. But Sailor has some unfinished business. He's got something that he's got to attend to. And we're not quite sure either what that might be. But they, they're in big tuna. And this is where we meet a former associate of his played by Isabella Rossellini. Her name is Perdita. And we find out that they were friends or criminal buddies or something like that and basically sailor wants to know if there's a hit out on him and she tells him no and so that kind of seems to be the business that he came to big tuna to take care of they kind of have this pact that if there's a hit out on either of them then they'll tell each other right so okay that's done back to the hotel right that's kind of what we see and again lots more fire imagery the just it's everywhere and you know choose your own adventure as to why that might be but we get back to sailor gets back to the hotel and finds lula not feeling well she's thrown up it's this tiny motel room with not a lot going on and he really wants to get on the road and get going and she's asking if, if they, they can stop if they can stay days. for a few days because she's sick she's not feeling good yeah that's the the you're disturbed by this movie the most disturbing part for me was that she threw up in the corner and they never clean it up they never clean it up they just open a window and Weird, then every, right? And then every time he comes into the hotel room from then on out, he always makes a comment as like, oh, it's really starting to smell in here. That puke's really making it smell bad. You're not, you're gonna, you're changing your car's oil, doing all this stuff, but you can't take thirty seconds and clean up some. Well, you know what I noticed too. At one point, the bed gets made. Like a maid comes in and makes the bed, but can't clean up the puke. It's a strange world. So Sailor and Lula are parking it for a few days. They're out that same night drinking with some of the locals, and we meet. Oh man, we meet some some strange guys that appear to be locals or regulars at least. To the good town of Big Tuna. And now we're talking about some strange, some and, strange. And again, like here. they don't. I think this might be the, one of the few times we see them. But there's some strange guys, and they're just weird and creepy. And that one just... creepy guy talks about how he's got a dog who barks sometimes. This here's Boozy Spool. We call him Double Out Spool. And there's a rocket scientist. My dog barks some. Mentally, you picture my dog, but I have not told you the type dog which I have. Perhaps you might even picture Toto from The Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. He's just, (laughs) there's just a lot, again, just more creepiness. And she's the only woman in the group, and she's very gimply dressed and you know sailor would protect her but it just it feels set up for some sort of abduction or assault in very in very david lynchian fashion we have kind of some random overweight women naked um, topless at least parading through the courtyard of the hotel yeah it's it's strange for sure it's that's one way to put it then we meet uh willem dafoe playing bobby peru and he i think he does a great job oh yeah he's fantastic super creepy Horrible teeth, really sharp dresser. Um, but like literally greasy hair. Yeah, like, he's just 
He's just gross. And again, we have, it must be intentional for Lynch to do this, but we have sort of this um, very archetype looking bad guy, archetypal villain. I mean, he's dressed in black. He's got a weaselly face. His hair is slicked back. He's, you know, not, he, he smiles and he's not to be trusted. And in the midst of their conversation with with Bobby, there's more cutaway scenes to the time that Lula was raped. You're just kind of going again. It's like danger flashing, yeah, very foreboding. Sign. Yeah, everything's yeah. everything's just kind of it is like the tension is building. So Lula's not very comfortable. She goes back to the room. I think she figures it out. She can't say it out loud, but she writes it down on a pad of paper that she's pregnant. Yes, hence the puking. Right, uh, and random cutaway. By the way, when she got raped, she got knocked up, and she was forced into an abortion. Yeah, something to that Just effect. Just a little tidbit to you I mean, know, add into the psychosis that is Lula. Yeah, yeah. It just, it's just, ugh. It's but just Sailor, hard. But Sailor's okay with it. Yeah, he's fine. He's like, hey, we're going to have a kid. Which is, honestly, which is exactly how I think he would handle it. Yeah. yeah. He's not He's like, all right. Her for- I, I love you, baby. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. But it does kind of put in him the sense of, um, you know, just like he protected her in the metal bar, he now knows that he's got to protect her. He's got to provide for her. He's got to provide for this baby. And I think it comes out, they have 40 bucks left of their name. All of these ominous, foreboding, dangerous things sort of building. And we get the next um, really major scene in the film. And that's, it, it seems like they're, Lula and Sailor are getting ready to leave Big Tuna because Sailor spends all day working on the car, getting it tuned up so that they can go. And Lula spends all day in the hotel, in the motel room. Um, she gets paid a visit by Bobby Peru. Which is the most creep-tastic scene of the movie. It is. And, you, you know, at this point I was thinking, okay, this is where it's all leading. I knew something was going to happen to her, and he's going to rape her, or he's going to kill her, or both, and it's going to be awful, or, you know, this is what we've been building to this whole time. Sure. And don't get me wrong, listeners, it's a creepy scene. It's very disturbing on many levels. It's very hard to watch. Laura Dern does an incredible job um, playing this scared, defenseless um, right. young woman. He basically, um, you know, forces himself on her. Kind of like verbally yeah, or emotionally. And, but physically too, but won't let off until she likes it. But which they're is, fully clothed the whole time. Yeah, but he's grabby. Yeah, he's grabby. But it's not like there's a, he throws her down on the bed sort of scene he he just like he grabs her neck and is fondling her and you know you're just waiting for the worst possible thing to happen like this is foreplay for him and it it doesn't go much further but like nate said he will not stop until she asks for it basically right it's really weird super manipulative and this is what really breaks her yeah but I mean, again, she, Laura Dern does an unbelievable job. And she is great. I mean, it she is, is so, it is so believable. It is so real. It is so hard to watch as a woman. I mean, I can't imagine how it was to actually act that scene out, but unbelievable. Just really top notch. Kudos, Laura Dern. You, yes. did, you did great. We know that you listen to this podcast. So. Yeah, exactly. There you go. If you're out there, 
Uh, so this all happens to Lula. Pretty terrible. You know, she kind of loses it and breaks down and has a hard time sort of for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, Bobby gets to Sailor, takes him out drinking, convinces him to be his second in a local feed store robbery. Right. The next day. Quick in, quick out. You know, walking with 5,000 bucks or something like that. Shades of raising Arizona. Yep. Very much so. And Bobby's like, oh, I, I don't really want to, but we've got a baby coming right. now. Turns out. That, okay, Santos hired Mr. Reindeer, who hired Perdita, who hooked up with Bobby Peru to put the hit on Sailor. Yeah, so this is all a big setup to Sailor's demise. And again, you're thinking, this is it. Lula gets raped. Sailor gets killed. This is how the movie is going to end. It's going to be depressing and awful. And But this is what you expected from all of the foreshadowing, terrible, creepy things. You just, this is, that this would make the most sense. Sure. Okay. I'm awful, but I'm on board. All right. right. So, you know, stuff happens, but ultimately they're heading to this feed store. In another Raising Arizona callback, they put uh, pantyhose over their head. They rob it. Everything goes according to plan. And then Bobby shoots the guys behind the counter with his shotgun. Blows one of their hands off in a very comedic fashion. Oh yeah, very much so. <laughs> Later on, they're these two guys. It's these two guys are crawling around on the floor like they're looking for a contact lens, except they're looking for the dude's hand. The floor is like covered with their blood, and the other guy's shot in the gut, and it's just like really kind of grotesque. And he's talking about oh, modern technology, they can put it back, and then we see a dog run off with it. Yeah, a dog picks up and runs oh, out the shucks. back door. So, That's kind of the tone of this movie. Yeah, it's it's like, well, and you didn't really need to go back in to visit these guys. It's that they get shot and then Bobby and Sailor run out and the rest of the main part of the of the action takes place outside of the feed store. But um we have to but Lynch again like decides to um send us back into the feed store for no reason other than to have this moment of the dog's taking his hand but it's really like gory yeah it's and bloody. really really it's just crazy juxtaposition so Bobby and Sailor run out and that's when the big plot is sort of revealed to Sailor that Bobby is there to shoot him and that he's gonna die and uh, about the time Sailor's about to meet his demise the cops show up and they're right. kind of bumbling idiots but they do manage to at least distract Bobby enough that he Trips and falls and literally blows his head yeah, off. Yeah, like he's got a shotgun and, and somehow he ends up pointing it at himself. And Come on, man! You're next, fucker. God! God! <laughs> Those are dummies. Dummy. <laughs> okay. Why don't you step up here, hot shot? I'll slap that smile right off your face. I read this was one of the scenes that they actually had to tone down. Like the movie was rated X or NC-17 or whatever it was back then. But they actually had to tone down a pretty violent <laughs> scene. Even the cut scene was pretty violent. Yeah, his head explodes. And oh yeah, guts fly everywhere. Guts fly everywhere. But um, yeah, this is one of the scenes that had pushed it over the edge and Lynch had to tone down a little bit. But um, yeah, pretty soon... Um, Sailor gets arrested. Sailor gets arrested, and um, that's kind of the end of this part of the story. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the big climactic moment. And you're thankful that Sailor's not dead, but, you know, Lula's pregnant, and now he's going to prison. And even that, it, you know, even though you expected things to go worse for them than, than it did, worse for Sailor and Lula, 
now you're kind of, this is like another potential cliched ending of, okay, well, now she's going to be a single mom and he's in prison and that's how it ends. And and yet, no, no. Well, she's back with her mother too. Well, Marietta goes and finds her, picks her up, takes her home. Sailor's in prison. Santos is there. Santos is there with her mom and... There's kind of this weird scene with the three of them where she can tell she wants to really resist them, but she can't because she's alone and pregnant and whatever. So much like we saw earlier where Sailor was in jail for a couple of years, I think now he's in jail again for six or seven years. Yeah, something like that. And in the meantime, um, Lula has his baby, cute little kid. Yep. So the movie flashes us forward to the day of his release. Uh, things seem to have been moving forward in life. Uh, Marietta's still the same horrible alcoholic mother. Slash crazy lady. And Lula is excited to uh, get her man out of prison. So there's a scene where Marietta's on the phone with uh, Lula, and Lula's basically saying, I want nothing to do with you, and I'm going to go get my man. So it doesn't seem like a very pivotal scene at the time, but in the conversation over the phone, there's a portrait, a framed picture of Marietta on Lula's coffee table that gets... Um, flipped over and uh, and water gets spilled on it. And in much like The Wizard of Oz, the picture melts. Yes, and it's it does. like the, the fact that Lula stood up to her mother is some sort of, you know, indication that the Wicked Witch has been defeated. And it it's, feels very weird the way that, that it rolls out in the movie. But that's sort of what I got out of that, why that happened. That her standing up to her mother was all what needed to happen for her to be defeated. So Lula goes to pick up Sailor. He's already got the jacket this time. Uh, it's a little bit more subdued this time. They don't go uh, straight off and go to the hotel because he meets his son for the first time. I think he, he must be five or six at this point. Yeah, and so they're in the car together and driving away from the train station off towards their life, and he kind of just decides that he's not good enough for Lula. Well, it's hard for her, too. She's having some... She's... Be, she's emotional about the life, life thing. has changed them right they're years apart possibly they've changed too much to be together and he just decides i'm gonna make the hard decision and leave and he gets out of the car and you know she doesn't want him or maybe he doesn't even get in the car in the first place but she doesn't want him he to does. go he, and they stop and he gets out and he starts walking and away he's just like you're like okay that's it he's leaving her and they'll never be together and that's how it's gonna end i mean there's like three potential four potential oh, cliche no. depressing endings you think okay Okay, well, it's this one. Oh, no, it must be that one. You just keep going on to the next series of endings. But no, oh, no, no, satisfa- not, no that satisfaction is, that for the not, conventional viewer. That is not how it ends for one Brit Porter. No, how no. it ends is I uh, want a story that makes sense. He's walking down the street. This, this doesn't happen uh, down the Yellow Brick Road. And seriously, a stereotypical gang of Mexicans come up. He calls them faggots. Uh, they knock his lights out. And he has a vision. He has a vision of Glinda the Good Witch, literally straight out of the Wizard of Oz, descending from the sky. In the big pink bubble with the floofy dress. Like, not a metaphor. Like, there she is. And she gives him a pep talk. And basically, she's like, fight for love. Sailor. Sailor. The Good Witch. Sailor Ripley, Luna loves you. But I'm a robber and a manslaughterer. And I haven't had any parental guidance. She's forgiven you all these things. You love her. Don't be afraid, Sailor. But I'm wild at heart. 
If you're truly wild at heart, you'll fight for your dreams. Don't turn away from love, sailor. Don't turn away from love. You love her. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of love. And he says the worst line in the whole movie, which Wor- is worst or best. It's so bad. And again, intentional all the way. Lynch is so happy that I'm upset. I'm sure of it. But he's laying on the pavement, having this vision, talking to Glinda, and he literally says, "But I'm wild at heart." Oh, he, he is wild at heart. Oh no! There's one other time in the movie where the phrase "wild at heart" is uttered. There's a, cu- a couple other times, and it it actually it's a little bit more poignant. But this is the worst. It's so cliched and cheesy. It's so bad. So he gets up. He thanks the gangsters for punching him for for teaching him a very valuable life lesson and he runs back and he uh finds his love and he serenades her with the song that he was only going to sing to the woman he was going to marry right he jumps over cars there she's like stuck in traffic so another great physical scene of oh yeah just so jumping he's over le- cars. literally leaping from car to car 10 cars probably gets to her car Pulls her out on top of it, stands on the car. The movie closes, literally credits rolling as he is... Sings the entire... Sings the entire song with this big, huge, bruised, broken nose, which I think is hilarious. Yeah, it's pretty gross. It's like... Which is... I mean, it's appropriate. He just had his nose broken by this gang, but it's so funny. Like, it's just... He's standing there, and it's supposed to be this loving tribute to his future wife and he's just got this big old bruised up schnoz just fantastic that's wild at heart and that's yeah it. that is it you guys wow. that's the whole movie wow it's i don't even know if we did it justice but no man, oh you've man. gotta now you've you, they've got to see it right we'll talk we'll, well, we'll talk about teasing yeah. it later uh we just talked about nick cage singing love me tender and you're gonna hear it now here is nick cage singing love me tender from the wild at heart soundtrack Love me tender, love me true, all my dreams fulfill. For my darling, I love you, and I always will. Love me.
everyone. Welcome back. That was our review of Wild at Heart. We are now going to jump right into our ratings. Give it, a, give it its place in the ranking of Cage movies. So, Nate, I'll go ahead and start with you. What do you think of the film Wild at Heart as entertainment? You know, I'm going to be honest. I didn't know what to expect, but I thought this film was super entertaining. What? It, it, it totally was. No. Yes, because the performances are great. The acting is super fun. It's very, very surreal and over the top. You never know what's going to happen next. I would say it's a little long, but that has nothing to do with whether or not I was entertained. I'm going to give it a three. Oh my gosh, seriously. Totally. I'm shocked. I was totally entertained. I am genuinely shocked. That you Seriously? were getting, yes, I thought, you know, artistic, sure, yeah, you're going to go that way, but entertainment listeners, it, it, Nick, I am Nicolas shocked. Nicolas Cage karate spin kicking the air, are That's you kidding like me? That's like 30 seconds of a two-hour movie. Death, death metal mashup. That's, you're probably entertained by 15 to 20 minutes of a two-hour plus No, and movie. I was, I was continually. I can't I believe con- that that no, plays no, no, so no, heavily no, no, no. I was continually engaged oh, the entire man. time. Wow. You were engaged too. You just don't want to admit it. You weren't sitting there bored the entire time. No, I mean, it was not time to kill. That was just awful. All right, no well, how about you? How entertained were you? Think I, about the word entertained. I am thinking about the word entertained, as a matter of fact. I, I feel that entertainment should be an enjoyable experience we all have seen films that have been moving or that have been important pieces of art or statements cultural and social statements that need to be seen we have seen those kinds of things and they might be important but not entertaining you may not have enjoyed watching them um 12 years a slave comes to mind for me i was not entertained by that, but it was important that i see it so you know i, I do believe that to be entertained is not not necessarily synonymous with, you know, a, a film that must be watched. I was not entertained. It was hard to watch at times. That lipstick on the face scene, l- listeners, I'm just telling you, for a non-bloodied, non-sexual, viol- non-violent scene, it was really disturbing. So kudos to you, David Lynch, I guess. But, you know, I at best can give this a 1.5 on the entertainment scale. It was not that's, fun. That's I didn't hard. I didn't okay. enjoy it. Right. I was uh, yeah, I think that karate chopping Nicolas Cage and Elvis singing Nicolas Cage was a lot of fun, but I would chalk that up to Cage and not to the film as a whole. Did I like watching it? No, I didn't. No, I, no, I did I was, not. I was there with it the whole time. I was I was I was having a great time. Yeah, well, that makes one of us. Moving on. Uh, how, how does the film rank as an artistic statement piece? I think it was great. I think the direction was pitch perfect. I Again, not narratively perfect, but evoked the mood um, that it was trying to. Uh, a life and a world, and the only thing that's real and true is this uh, love and passion, and that's, that's what we can fight for. You said it wasn't really leading up to anything major. I think it was leading up to something huge, saying that, yes, all this crazy stuff can happen, but in the end, what all you have is to fight for the the people that you love. And ultimately that's the only important thing. I think there were some beautiful shots. I think there was some beautiful cinematography and I think David Lynch did a great job directing this film. So I give it a 3.5. Oh, I knew that. See, that doesn't surprise me. I knew that was coming from you. How about you? Well, I'm, I'm very grudging with my, with my rating. Um, I understand that art is not 
understood or appreciated by everyone who experiences it. That that doesn't make it not art. I get that. I think that this could leap, leap us into a whole conversation about aesthetics and who gets to decide what is good art and how does that, what, what do we even qualify as good art and yada yada, all those questions, right, that never get answered. I did not like the art that I saw, but I can't deny that there is artistic merit. I don't understand it. But I can't deny that Lynch wasn't intentional in the choices that he made in terms of the the way the film was cut, the dialogue, the um, strange motifs and metaphors, all of that stuff. Again, as we said at the beginning of this podcast, he evokes a tone, he evokes a mood, and whether or not you like that may be irrelevant. So grudgingly, I will give this a 2.5. Whoa, only a 2.5? I'm... I'm, On principle. I on think, principle, I think you on think, principle. I think you probably think it's a three, but you're... you're on principle, that's right. what I can do. Did Answer me this. Did he get out of you what he was trying to get out of you? Probably. He probably did. And So and that's not a three? No. I, I'm sorry. I can't. Now, listeners, when we were researching this film, I came across a really interesting piece information about it. And, and so I want to share that with you now because I think it plays well into the the way that we're rating this movie. When this film aired at Cannes in 1990, it was, I don't think anyone expected much from it, but the day that it aired, after the film screened, it re- received a standing ovation from its audience. Yes, it did. Standing ovation at Cannes, right? Later on in the festival, it was awarded the Palme d'Or, which is one of the highest accolades a film can receive, and it was booed when that was called... When the name of the film was called, Receive the Palm Door, there was mass booing from the audience. So it just goes to show this is probably a love it or hate it film. And therein you have the conundrum that we porters are facing right now. Well, I think I loved it. Oh, I know that you did. All right. Our final rating for this film, Nate, how would you rate Cage's performance? I think anyone who objectively sees this movie and is being honest with how Mr. Cage did, would have to give him a 3.5 or better, which is what I'm going to do. 3.5. I think he is great. I think he's at the top of his game. I am loving Nicolas Cage in this stage of his career. I think he does everything he wants to do. I think he's insane. And I think he is having a lot of fun. And I think he nails Sailor. I think, um, just like we talked about, could could anyone else play this role? No, no one else could do what he did here. I would say it's one of his best performances of all time, uh, at least in my opinion, from what I've seen so far. It was great. I loved it. Uh, I think Laura Dern is a four in this movie. I think she really stole the show, but this is not the Laura Dern cast. This is Cage cast. And so I'm giving him a solid 3.5 for this movie. You know, I don't disagree with you there. I think that what we saw from from him is really just... It's just the the beginning of sort of the getting the the train rolling for him. And he's had some really phenomenal performances in film, past films that we've reviewed. And there's, you know, no denying that he can pull off this kind of character exceptionally well. It really was a flawless performance. And I see in Sailor a sort of um, a, a multi-layered or a more complex version of some of the other characters that we've yeah, seen totally. him play. I see a little bit of... Um, H.I. McDonough? Yeah, I see a mm-hmm. little bit of High. I see a little bit of Peter from Vampire's Kiss. Totally. There's just a little bit of different side aspects of characters that he's played before that all sort of are culminating here. Now, obviously, we know this is the end of his career, but at this point in the game, I think he's really layering the complexity. It's not 
Sailor is not a face value character, which which I really appreciate. And so I would agree, and I will also give him a 3.5. Wonderful. Well, that is the smartest thing you've said all night, darling. Ooh, those are fighting words. No, no, I'm really proud of you. I know that takes a lot when you, um, because I know you really didn't like this movie a lot. It, it, it was hard for you to watch, but I appreciate that you can see, um, you can kind of look past your personal enjoyment and see uh, the truth. So that brings us to um, a total of 17.5, which is pretty high up there for the movies we've seen so far. Yeah, I don't think it's topped out Vampire's Kiss. No, but it's uh, a pretty close second. And I can't. Well, I can't remember. Um, Raising Arizona might be up there too. We'll, we'll we'll let people know next week. Yeah. Okay. Well, now it's uh, only one thing left. Our cage cast running totals rapid fire questionnaire, Britt. I'm going to ask you the questions. Let's do this. All right. In this movie, is Nick Cage a lady killer? Oh yes. Uh, he actually does not kill a lady in this one. Not but, like uh, the last one. Last two. Oh. In this movie, is Nicolas Cage drunk or high? Well, he's definitely drinking. Yes, he gets drunk with Bobby Peru. Yes, he does. Sure does. Does he have crazy hair? No, he has character-appropriate hair. That's right. In this movie, does Nick Cage have a crazy voice, accent, or inflection? Well, he has an accent. Are you labeling it crazy? I'm saying, yeah, I think he's doing an Elvis impersonation the entire movie. Not just as a good old Southern boy? Oh, you know how, you know, sometimes, oh, Lula, I just think, oh, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't know. I'll give it a yes, but that's a thin, that's, that's a thinly right. stretched yes now, for me. Now, do we see cage rage? Yes. We see it right at the beginning. That's right. The back of that guy's head and his brain spilled out on the floor. Yeah. Have cage rage all over him. Absolutely. In this movie, does Nick Cage punch or get punched? He surely does. And in this movie, does Nicolas Cage run with a flashlight? He does not. Someday. Someday. A girl can dream. All right, folks. Well, that was our complete review and rating of Wild at Heart. It was fun for me. Yeah. I mean. Glad we did it. Wasn't my favorite, but. Glad you saw it. We, it's, as, as we've experienced now, it could be worse. Would you tell people to see it? I would tell some people to see it. All right. I can, I can live with that. All right. Well, our next movie is 1990's Firebird. Yes, I can't wait. Starring Tommy Lee Jones, Sean Young, and of course, Nicolas Cage. Have you seen Firebirds? What do you remember about the film and what do you think about Cage in the movie? Send us your thoughts. I I literally cannot wait because I believe, I'm not sure, but I believe this is a ripoff of Top Gun with helicopters instead of fighter planes. Yeah, we're very excited to see what what happens here. All right. If you do have any thoughts, send us your review. We will get you on the air. Our email address is ilovecagecast at gmail.com. You can always call and leave a voicemail. That's 3008 cage okay. That's 330. That's 330 822 4365. Music this week can be found on the Wild at Heart original motion picture soundtrack, and our theme song was written by Chris Cornell and Soundgarden and performed by Johnny Cash. Please go to iTunes and leave us a four or five star review. It would certainly help us. And uh, we'll be back next week. But until then, We will leave you with a reminder that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and belief in personal freedom. Couldn't have said it better myself, darling. Bye! Oh, there it is. I got it. Okay. Okay. Hello and welcome to CageCast. No 
stage news. Dun dun dun. Okay, with all those pleasantries out of the way. Okay. No, we're not doing it. I'm, I'm giving it to you. No, I don't want it. <laughs> oh. I don't want it like that's, that. <laughs> that's a first. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> with all those pleasantries out of the way. No. no. Okay. Let's right. just get going. Wild at heart. Why don't you tell us who his notable co-stars are in Wild at Heart? Nick Cage's. Why don't you tell us who Cage's notable co-stars are in Wild at Heart? His co-stars. Why don't you tell us who Cage's notable co-stars are in Wild at Heart? <laughs> <laughs> notable co-stars is really hard to say. A rural juror. Notable co-stars. Notable co-stars. Notable coal stars Notable co-stars. Stars actually, they're burning car. Never mind. Go ahead. <laughs> 